if you were to do that with Luke's gospel, you would find that there is definitely a development and a build-up toward a climax. There was an old movie called High Noon. <clears throat> Some of you, of course, aren't old enough to remember that, but <clears throat> it was Western, and uh, there was, of course, a goodie and a baddie, and everything was building up toward the time when they would finally meet and shoot it out, and that would be the end. <clears throat> and you get a little bit of that in, in Luke's Gospel. And there was even one uh, mention of it as we began the reading. He was moving up towards Jerusalem. Uh, and that phrase or something like it comes about eight times in Luke's Gospel. Uh, and you get the idea of the high noon encounter between Jerusalem and Jesus. So who are these two protagonists? <clears throat> and uh, I don't, of course, want to belittle Jesus because we worship him and we've been singing about his glory and his majesty and that's absolutely true. He has always been God. He's never been less than God. But sometimes when we hold that in our mind, we forget his real humanity. <clears throat> and as a man, he wasn't distinguished. You know, as a small child, he was a refugee in Egypt <clears throat> and then returned to his home country, but not to Jerusalem, to a nasty little dump of a town called Nazareth, <clears throat> a place comedians made jokes about. And uh, he was from a poor family. When uh, the firstborn son arrived, <clears throat> the parents had to bring an offering to the temple. If they were wealthy, they would bring a lamb. The poorest offering they could bring was two pigeons. That's what Mary and Joseph brought when Jesus was born. They were not a wealthy couple. <clears throat> and uh, being a carpenter, as Joseph was, and then Jesus, was, was not a glamorous profession. <clears throat> it was a depressed economy to begin with, and this little backwater of a place called Nazareth <clears throat> is where he practiced his carpentry. And he would have very little in the way of schooling. What he did have would be in the synagogue school in Nazareth with some boring old rabbi who could uh, no doubt recite Leviticus from beginning to end but forgotten who God is. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> it wasn't all that exciting for him. And then once he began working, it would be six days a week. <clears throat> and so he is uh, the man from nowhere, um, with no qualifications, no recognized position. That's his human background. And then over here is Jerusalem, the religious capital of the world, the most important religious city in the world, with two very splendid buildings. The most splendid was the temple. And it had been built, built by Herod just about in Jesus' lifetime, but it would accommodate standing about 40,000 people. It wasn't a small building. <coughs> and uh, it had quite a worship team. We don't really know how many there were in the worship team. 
but we know King David designed 4,000 instruments. <coughs> and some of them, no doubt, <laughs> had been repaired a few times by the time you get down to Jesus' time. But uh, music was obviously seriously important. And if there were 4,000 musical instruments, you can guess how many people were in choir. <laughs> so uh, religion was really flourishing. And um, they were proud of themselves as being God's chosen people. And they had been God's chosen people since the time of Abraham, their ancestors, that's 2,000 years, which is quite a long time in American history, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> 2,000 years and uh, since David, Jerusalem had been their capital, so we're doing about 900 years for that. <clears throat> and, you know, all of this happening. And so here's Jerusalem, and, and here's this nowhere man approaching Jerusalem. And we have two questions. What is Jerusalem going to think of Jesus? And what is Jesus going to think of Jerusalem? And I often find myself thinking about that second question as I go different places. And uh, of course, most of us think we've got it right. Don't we? we try to get it right anyway, don't we? And if everybody else was like us, it would be a great world, wouldn't it be wonderful? And uh, that's what Jerusalem thought about themselves as well. But what did Jesus think of Jerusalem? And we aren't left to guess that because we're told that when he arrived and he looked at Jerusalem, he wept. Uh, and I wonder, you know, how often Jesus weeps over organizations and events that we're proud of. Because it's much more difficult to impress God than it is to impress people. <clears throat> Why did he weep over Jerusalem? Well, he saw the people as sheep with no shepherd. And of course, a sheep with no shepherd is seriously at risk. Sheep don't fight very well, not even the ones with huge horns. You know, they don't fight all that well. Put one up against a mountain lion, there's only one outcome, isn't there? Or a bear? <laughs> Forget it. <coughs> sheep can't fight very well, and they had serious enemies. They can't even run all that fast. You know, put one up against a pack of wolves, and it's history. <coughs> and sheep, of course, are intelligent enough to eat all the grass in the field that they're in but they may not know where to find the next field once they've finished all the grass in that one. And so a sheep desperately needs a shepherd to protect it, defend it, and to take it to sustenance. And a sheep without a shepherd, you know, is very short-lived. That's how Jesus saw the people of Jerusalem. Even in the midst of all their pomp and you know, confidence and all the rest of it, Jesus' view was very different. As he comes into Jerusalem, 
he's been three years in public ministry, traveling around. Uh, he didn't have a limousine to travel in. <laughs> he didn't even have a donkey to ride on most of the time. <clears throat> he had a ragtag band of followers, but they weren't distinguished people. Uh, he didn't appear to have any money. <clears throat> and he didn't have a secretary or a PR person or anything like that. Uh, but a few miracles had happened and uh, his reputation was beginning to climb and people wanted to see him. And of course, some of those who had experienced his miracles were extremely grateful. And so he comes into Jerusalem very low-key fashion, riding on a coat that hadn't been ridden for, which sounds a bit risky to me. You know, <laughs> I'm not all that happy on a horse that everybody's ridden before. But uh, <clears throat> you know, he, and he didn't have a horse. You know, he wasn't an experienced horseman. <clears throat> but here he comes into Jerusalem on this thing. And the crowds come out and they're shouting very extravagant things that happen to be true, but extravagant nonetheless. They cut branches off the trees and lay them in the road that he's about to ride over. <coughs> and they're shouting Hosanna and they're giving him the title Son of David, which is, of course, Messianic. <coughs> and... Uh, Jerusalem was not only a very religious city, it was a political powder keg. Because as far as the Roman Empire, the Romans had conquered the city, but it was not at peace. Generally, when the Romans took over a city, the locals became thankful because the Romans brought peace, they brought stability, they built roads, harbors, made the possibility of prosperity. And uh, they were, on the whole, a benefit. But the Jews were never content because, of course, they were God's chosen people. The Romans were not. The Romans were scum. They were heathen, even if they were in power. <coughs> and they were looking for chances to get rid of them. And so there was always tension. And the Romans kept a big garrison in Jerusalem. Unlike other towns they conquered, just a few soldiers were plenty. They had to have a lot of troops in Jerusalem to keep the Jews down. So they actually built a building that was bigger than the temple to house their troops. And this was built out of taxes the Jews paid to the Romans. And of course, they also paid the salaries of the soldiers to keep them down. So it was kind of explosive. The Romans didn't like big public demonstrations because this could be another uprising, foreign language and all the rest of it. <coughs> and they didn't always know what was happening. And the Jewish leaders tried to contain things, so they're sort of upset when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and they go and tell him to tell the people to be quiet. <coughs> and... Uh, Jesus isn't terribly impressed with these guys. He should be, of course, because they're important and he's not. But, but uh, he's not. And he says, even if the people are silent, then the stones will cry out. And I have a friend back home in Northern Ireland who says, 
No old stone is going to rob me of my chance to praise. (laughs) And then he comes into the temple. And he's not weeping anymore. Now he's seriously angry. And I like this picture of Jesus. Because when I was a kid growing up, I was told about a gentle Jesus, meek and mild. (laughs) And he could be that way, of course. But it's a kind of very soft, sort of effeminate picture of Jesus. And and this one is a little more robust. And uh, he gets mad. It's okay to get mad sometimes. In fact, we ought to get mad sometimes. If we don't, we're very insensitive to what's happening. And why does he get mad? It's because he has a heart for people particularly ordinary people. And he sees them being ripped off. The temple is supposed to be a place where people can come and meet with God and bring their worship and be blessed. But the culture had emphasized that you couldn't come to God without a sacrifice, which, of course, is true in a sense. (coughs) But... You couldn't bring your own dirty animal off your farm into the temple. Oh, dear, no. You had to buy one in the temple. Exactly the same kind of animal, maybe a little cleaner, (laughs) but ten times the price. And you couldn't bring your own dirty money into the temple to buy a sacrifice. Oh, no. You had to change it for temple money at ten times the value. So you were ripped off ten times to get the money and then ten times again to buy the sacrifice. You were paying a hundred times over the odds or you couldn't approach God. And for nearly all the ordinary people, they just couldn't do it. And so they felt rejected and excluded. But the guys who were running the show made a financial killing. It was good business for them. And... It's not terribly unusual, is it? (laughs) So Jesus, when he sees this, gets really angry because he has come for people. He's come to seek and to save the lost. And he is the heart of God. And the very people who should be facilitating an approach to God are actually isolating people from God. They're doing the reverse of what they're supposed to be doing, getting paid for it. And so he goes up to the nearest table of the money changes and, of course, covered in coin because people didn't pay in paper money and they didn't pay by credit card or over the internet. And there are all these piles of coins everywhere, and he grabs the table and flings it over, and coins are scattered everywhere, and a couple of fat little Jewish businessmen are scrabbling around on the floor trying to collect all the coins up again, and he makes a rope out of, a whip out of ropes and drives them out of the temple, and he goes down the line and turns over all the tables, and 
And he's sort of upsetting things. <laughs> and, and for those who've got this nicely ordered system which gives them all kinds of respect and honor and a lot of money into the bargain, he's really messing things up. <laughs> so we're not too surprised when there's a confrontation between the rel- religious leaders, including the high priest, and the religious lawyers and Jesus. And if you put yourself in this position, you, know, you've, you don't normally go to the capital. You don't know anybody there. You don't own any property. And you're a nobody and here are these powerful guys and they confront you all together. How do you feel? They even borrowed the title of a television program. Who do you think you are? Coming in here, messing up our system. What authority have you got? Who gave you this authority? I think most of us in that position would have gone, Oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I got carried away. <laughs> I, I won't do it again. <laughs> but, but Jesus is not intimidated at all. And he goes into classic rabbinical style, which is you don't answer a question. You just ask another question. (laughs) So I will ask you a question. John the Baptist, where did he get his authority? (laughs) And they go into a little huddle discussing how they're going to answer this question. (laughs) And they say, what are we going to say? Because if we, well, we better look at John the Baptist a bit, maybe. Who was he? Technically, he was a priest because his dad was a priest and the priesthood was passed on. <coughs> he was a priest, but he did not function as a priest. Didn't wear the robes, didn't function in the temple, but out in the desert where there's no shade and it's not an attractive place. And instead of going into a nice, cool marble building with an incredible worship team, people are walking five miles out in the desert to hear this guy. And when they got there, he wasn't very polite. (laughs) He didn't offer them some refreshment and a good welcome. (laughs) But um, he told them they, they weren't even Jews, really. And he was practicing baptism, which was not for Jews. Baptism was for disgusting heathen people who wanted to become Jews. And this is what he was telling them to do. And they did it. Thousands of them. Why? Because there was about John a genuine authority from God. And although the temple was very artistic and all the rest of it, there was no reality there. It was fake. And the reality was in this one lone, rough guy out there in the desert. And they submitted to his baptism. So when the leaders go into a little huddle, how are we going to answer this question? Where did John get his authority? Uh, if we say he got it from God, he's going to say, well, so why didn't you go out and get baptized then if you knew that? <laughs> And if we say, well, of course, John had no authority, nobody. Well, (laughs) 
that may be what we think, but the ordinary people just take us out and lynch us because they think John was genuine. So they come back and they say, we cannot tell. Which is smarmy and untrue because they knew, really. And Jesus penetrates the hypocrisy when he says, neither will I tell you where I get my authority. It's not you can't, you won't. If you won't answer my question, I don't have to answer yours, do I? See you. <laughs> and that's kind of the end of that encounter. But there are some others that have been sitting down plotting a bit more carefully and they are determined to get rid of Jesus. He's always in conflict situations once he begins his public ministry. <coughs> and this is more cleverly thought out and the leaders don't appear themselves but some lower key people who won't be recognized won't put Jesus on his guard. And, and they come and they say, Hey, Jesus, it really isn't right, is it, that we should give our beautiful, hard-earned Jewish money to these Roman overlords. We shouldn't have to do that, should we? And this is cleverly thought out because paying taxes to the Romans was seriously unpopular. <clears throat> but if Jesus says, which they hope, no, we shouldn't be doing this, then they accuse him to the Romans and he'll maybe last one day before the Romans get rid of him. So if he says no, he's unpopular, if he says no, he'll be killed by the Romans. If he says yes, he'll be unpopular with everybody there. <laughs> How do you handle a question like this? Even if you're an experienced politician and all the rest of it, which, of course, Jesus is not. But he says, show me a coin. And they produce one. And he holds it up. Whose head is that? Caesar's. Hmm. Must belong to him then, right? Yeah. It wouldn't be right, of course, for you to give your money to Caesar, but this is Caesar's already. You nice, holy Jewish people, you wouldn't want to steal from the heathen, would you? Yeah. Aren't you above that? So pay back, and that's the key expression. Pay back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and pay back to God what belongs to God. Behind that comment is the last book in their Bible, our Old Testament. The last book in their Bible is Malachi where this question is asked, will a man rob God? <laughs> How have we robbed you? You say in tithes and offerings. You haven't been paying your dues. How does that work out for you and me? Hmm. Well, most of us think our property belongs to us. And if somebody else wants to use it, they better get permission, shouldn't they? You don't expect your next-door neighbor to walk into your garage and climb into your car and drive downtown, do you? 
<coughs> or walk into your bedroom and put on some of your clothes and you know. <coughs> and we like to think our property sort of belongs to us. But see, Paul had to write to the Romans and say, Hey, don't you know excuse me, Corinthians, uh, don't you know you've been bought with a price? And you are not your own. So glorify God in your spirit and in your body because they are his. See, your life is not yours. You have been bought. That's what we mean by the word redeemed. It means you've been bought. And once you've been bought, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to somebody else. And that means that you are his property. Will a man rob God? How many days have we lived pleasing ourselves instead of pleasing him? Doing what we think we should do instead of what he thinks we should be doing. Even feeling good if we give him an hour. Having stolen 23. So pay to Caesar what belongs to him and pay back to God what belongs to him. Now the Sadducees have enjoyed this because they don't like the Pharisees. Who are the Sadducees? They were also among the rulers, political rather than religious. And they were educated and sophisticated, but not very religious. They weren't anti-religious, you realize. They regarded religion as quite a good thing as long as you weren't a fanatic. See, you know, they would come to church ooh, twice a year. <laughs> as long as it was the right occasion and people saw them there. But they were not fanatics and they didn't do fanatic things like actually contribute significant money or or uh, believe in things like miracles or particularly life after death. Now, nobody believes that. And so they've been watching the encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees and they've been enjoying this and now they come because they think probably Jesus will be on their side. <clears throat> and, and they come with their classic theological hot potato. Hey, Jesus, ah, master, excuse me, rabbi. <laughs> there was this nice Jewish lady and she got married, as good Jewish women do. And tragically, her husband died. And according to the law, she shouldn't be left alone as a widow. A brother of a dead husband should marry her. So his brother did. But unfortunately, he died as well. And just shortening this a bit, there are seven brothers in this family. And they all bury her one after the other and they all die. And then finally the woman dies. Now, Jesus, <laughs> whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? <clears throat> and you can imagine the debates that would take place, couldn't you? The older brother would say, my wife, I married her first. The youngest one would say, no, no, my wife, I married her last. 
number five might say, well, if you want to go ahead, she was kind of dangerous when she was down there. Uh, and then think of the embarrassment for the poor woman who's got to see, you know. And that is their argument to say there is no resurrection. And Jesus confronts them. And again, it's crazy. These are these, are these polished, wealthy, powerful people. And here he is and nobody. And he says, you're in error because you don't know the power of God or the word of God. <clears throat> in heaven, there is no marriage. It's like the angels. They get along very well without it. And and so the question is a stupid question because it doesn't apply. That's not to say that heaven is disappointing, although you might be disappointed now to hear that. But but, uh, you can't imagine how good heaven's going to be. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for you. But marriage is not one of them. And you don't know the word of God. Have you never read, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, of course they have. <laughs> it comes a number of times in the Old Testament, and all of them have been brought up Jews. The only schooling they had was in the Old Testament. They said, isn't it obvious? See, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham, which requires Abraham to be still around somewhere. And Isaac, and Jacob. You're in there, you don't even know the word of God. See you. (laughs) And that's the end of that. And the next line is astonishing. All this build up and Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and Jerusalem is expecting Jesus. The next line says, no one else dared ask him another question. It's not bad for an uneducated carpenter, is it? No one else dared ask him another question. How did Jesus always know to say the right thing? in all these different unexpected situations, and never to say the wrong thing. For 2,000 years, critics have examined the things he said, and nobody's been able to improve on anything. (laughs) There's nobody else like that in history, is there? People are saying things every day. which they wish they hadn't said. <laughs> Some of them even tweet them. You know? <laughs> so how did Jesus always know to say the right thing? And what we tend to do subconsciously is say, well, of course he did. It's Jesus. Not the right answer. Here's what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I tell you, the words I say are not my words. 
the Father who lives in me, he knows everything. And Jesus, although he didn't have a secretary or any money or an education, he, he had an infinite resource in his Father. And the Father is the secret of everything you see in Jesus. Jesus is never less than God, but he plays according to the rules of man. He plays by the same rules that you and I have to play by. And the whole secret of Jesus' life and ministry is the Father. The invisible resource. And Jesus regards himself as a missionary. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus is sent by the Father. And then he says, as the Father sent me, I send you. And he sends us on the same terms. The Father didn't send Jesus with nothing. The Father sent Jesus with himself. And Jesus doesn't send you with nothing. He sends you with himself. Look, I am with you. Always. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we're going into a world that hates Jesus. And that hatred is becoming steadily more manifest. And we're engaged in a battle. And we have the Almighty as our resource. Victory is guaranteed and glory awaits. So let's not fear anybody or anything. If Jesus could face Jerusalem, you can face whatever's in front of you today, can't you? Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Ken, that message. And uh, Ken will be back uh, Wednesday night for our uh, evening Bible study at 7 o'clock over in the Fellowship Hall. So if you're interested in coming out for that, that'll be 7 o'clock on, on Wednesday. Let me close our time in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll close with a song. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Christ and uh, his promise to us that he goes with us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, we do live in a lost and dying world that's pretty much negative about the gospel and who Christ is, and yet you've given us the task to go and to preach this good news, and Lord, uh, so many times we, we fail in this task. We fail because of fear or, or just we don't know what to say. Lord, we, we really need to learn to trust in you each and every day because you've called us to be your children, to be salt and light in this lost and dying world that people would be exposed to the brightness of Christ and to come to understand his forgiveness and his grace. And Lord, if there's any here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in, in the risen Savior, Father, it's never too late. It's, 
It's as simple as understanding your need of a Savior, understanding your own sinfulness before a holy God, and then crying out to him, Lord, save me, be merciful to me, a Savior. And he, he will answer that prayer when it's prayed from a sincere heart, when it's prayed from a broken heart, a heart of need. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that if there's any here, that they would cry out to you, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, Lord, that you would transform them, that you would save them by your grace. And for us believers, Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that we would understand what it means to go out into this lost and dying world and to not only be examples of your son, but also to proclaim your son with our lips. And, Lord, uh, we just pray that you would give us the boldness and the willingness to do so. And, Father, that we would see many come to Christ as a result of hearing your, your gospel, your good news. And so, Father, we just thank you, and we pray that you would uh, dismiss us with your blessing after this song. Pray for our fellowship time across the way as we uh, have a meal together, Lord, that you would just bless that time of fellowship. And uh, bless Ken and Eva while they're here this week. I pray for Eva's uh, back, that it would continue to heal up and, and that she would feel better um, as time goes on. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.